Blair Palmer and welcome to the Punks in Suits podcast, bringing the leadership thinking, beliefs, philosophies and practices behind punky, startup-y next stage businesses to you, even if your company's not quite there yet. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of the Punks in Suits podcast. I hope you are really well. This week I have a really lovely and quite different interview for you. I'm talking to behaviourist Jez Rose about his latest project, The Good Life Project. Our connection with nature is something we often ignore or at least take kind of for granted. But research shows that contact with nature, even if it's just an image of nature or a view out of the window, makes a difference to our happiness and to our productivity. In this interview, I talked to Jez about his own research, his dramatic change of lifestyle to enable him to get even deeper into this topic, and how to reward a chicken. I watched a lady. <laughs> I watched a lady offering the chicken. <laughs> the chicken had done the thing that she asked it to do. It was pecking the correct colour. And uh, she offered it a cup of grain and it, <laughs> it walked off because it didn't want the grain. So she chased it round the room, trying to force it to have this treat, like forcing it to like the thing that she had chosen it should be reinforced with. So without further ado, let's go over to the show. It's with great pleasure that I welcome this week's guest. He is behaviourist, broadcaster, award-winning author and faculty leader of the Good Life Project, Jez Rose. Hello, Jez. Hello, lovely Blair. You all right? <laughs> lovely, thanks. This feels so strange to be chatting to somebody that I consider a almost friend. Almost, um, yeah. yeah, like a friend. Um, <laughs> in such a formal setting. I hope I don't let you down. I feel a little nervous. No, you won't. You won't let me down. But I feel quite excited in a, in a very nice way. Um, because I, I'm a little in awe of you, if I'm honest, Jez. Um, <laughs> I'm being serious. We, we met when we were doing a series of events together for a, for a company that was running some road shows. And you're, I mean, one of the things I didn't mention in that introduction of you is that you're a very talented, very inspirational keynote speaker. And you were the keynote speaker at this series of events. And I got to see your speech four times. I know, poor you. (laughs) And then you didn't talk to me for a year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but then, you know, I I got over it and I I picked up And now we're hers, which is good. So, but but I was really impressed. And one of the things I was impressed by is your energy, the amount of energy that you're able to muster um, every time you give a presentation. And I just, uh, is it is that because you love it? Is it because you're, you get excited? Where does all of that energy come from? Um, it, so it's genuine energy. It's not... Um it's not artificial and the reason I say that is there's a just a a diversion real quick there was a funny thing that happened quite a long time ago so so this year I've been speaking uh, and most people know me as a speaker but that's not really my main job but so uh, for 13 years this year I've been speaking at conferences and about 10 years ago I used to have this this um, attention strategy whereby I would regularly bring my hands close to my face or just sort of casually touch my nose to, to bring people's attention towards my face and towards me. Um, and because I am quite energetic when I present, the client asked via my agent whether I was on drugs because they sort of put the energy and the touching my nose together and figured that maybe that would make four. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I just want to just put that out there now that it's natural energy um yes to answer your question very succinctly uh i love i love to people and the potential that people have really fascinates me every day it 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 makes me get up in the morning it drives me what i love is talking to people that look disinterested and disengaged i love that even more 
I don't don't get me wrong. Like I love it when there's a group of people that uh, totally understand your message. They want to learn it. They want to deliver it. <clears throat> and they want to take it on board and make a difference. But I equally love taking people from point A, where disengaged, bored, uninterested, don't see the point, to point B, where they say, "Oh, I've had it." It's like a revelationary moment. Um, so the energy is, I think, just comes from from sometimes you, in order to get other people to do things differently. It's the energy that's going to drive them to do it. You can't just say, oh, you know, maybe you should try this. It's passion that drives people. And if there's no passion in the room or there is, there is less passion, um, I find that by me providing the passion, it helps drive them quicker to a point um, cerebrally where they can start thinking about things differently. And you're a behaviorist. I want to know um, quite what that is. But is that... Is that what you're excited about, or what is it exactly that that drives this energy that you have in everything that you're that you're doing right now? Um, well, look, here's the. This is going to sound so remarkably corny, but it is true. Um, there is no bookie that will give you odds for waking up tomorrow morning, right? And in the last five years. I've lost so many people that were close to me and meant a whole lot to me that my life feels sincerely, personally, um, a little less enriched than it did. And we can all relate to that. I'm not saying I stand out in any way because of that. But it does surprise me every day by people who don't push, they don't passionately drive, <clears throat> they just live life as if it was only a rehearsal and that they got to do it again at some point. And then, you know, they work their grumpy ass off until they're 65 so that they can retire and get out of this terrible, you know, hell hole that they work in. And then they die. Um, so I'm constantly reminded of that. And my background's the NHS. So every day I was dealing with people that, you know, were ill or unwell. Um, and I think that sincerely is what drives me. And crikey, we don't get to do it again, right? So I'm going to make sure that everything that happens in my life is as positive as possible, um, but realistic. You know, I'm realistic um, enough to know that life's quite a complicated thing, but I certainly want to try and make it as positive and as, as happy as possible, and that we do things that are greater than just ordinary. You know, I mean, that, that's where this... I've become relatively well-known for the phrase, be extraordinary, and, and this notion of from ordinary to extraordinary... And that's where that's driven from, because, you know, being ordinary is easy and it doesn't really bring you anything of interest or or any engagement or any significant happiness. So, you know, if we set the bar high, we've got so much more to play with in life. Um, so I, I think that's what drives everything I do. I'm, I'm talking slightly out of context. And I realise I probably sound my, my tones change because I'm thinking at the same time as talking. I don't, it's not like I have a stock answer. Like people ask me that all the time. I don't, I don't, they don't. So I, I don't, does that help? Does that explain it? Or have I just gone off on a tangent? No, I think it really does. And, and I, I know it's true for you. And we're going to come on in a minute to talk about the Good Life Project and what that is and what it means. Uh -huh. But you and I, are, uh, you're slightly um, a few steps ahead of me in terms of the stuff that we want to do in this area. But it, for me, the, the plan to, to sell up and, and move to a small yeah. and, and get the animals and grow the veg and all of that, it's part of the same thing. It's something yeah. that I imagine doing later. I imagine doing it, you know, in my 50s as I was heading towards retirement so I'd have something to do in my retirement. Why would I wait when yeah. I could have it now. I mean, there's, there's no reason why I couldn't have it now. And so I started getting things moving. And I think sure. that it's quite a common uh, disease, if you like, for people to think one day I will mm -hmm. fill in the gap of the thing that, that lights you up. And of course, meanwhile, you're not doing the thing that lights mm -hmm. you up and life is passing you by. And like you say, there's no guarantee that that time is going to come. The only thing we know is we have now, and that's it. Sure, sure. I mean, it sounds pretty morbid, but it, but it, it is true. You know, it's the same way that people um, don't talk about... Uh, this is going off on a ridiculous tangent. What I was going to say was it's the same way that people don't really talk about death, they don't really talk about personal issues, they don't talk about toileting, they don't talk about all the things that are normal for our species. And yet there are so many things that socially just either get 
maybe consciously or subconsciously just sort of you know brushed under the carpet or whatever um and and this idea of doing what you want to do right now i think for me it's compounded by the fact that i am quite impatient i have a very strange relationship with patience i am impatience to a fault of my own ability and my own workload i'm remarkably patient with other people um uh, yet that compounds or exacerbates this notion of wanting to do you know things now and do as much as possible now so um my grandma used to always used to say grass will never grow under your feet um which i thought was an odd thing to say because if you stood still grass would never grow under your feet because obviously it would have no light or opportunity for her to synthesize but i think what she meant was um you know there will never be opportunity for 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 things to just sort of uh, you know grow old and tired because i'm always onto something new yeah so, so I want to get into some stuff about what you're, what you're doing, um, but I, I just want to really get clear about what this term behaviorist is, because mm-hmm. I'm not sure I've ever met one before. So, <laughs> so, um, so it's not a new thing. And so our founding grandfather was B.F. Skinner. Um, and Skinner is often very well known for um, Skinner's box. Um, which was, uh, he's the founding father of, of behaviorism. He was the first person that linked um, sort of an application of the fact that there are, there's a certain, um, a certain formula, if you like, to behavior and the way that it can be modeled. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that's misprinted about Skinner, actually a fascinating man, real family man. There was a lot of of lies and, and, and negativity that went around about some of the things he did. Um, so for example, one of the, the, the famous uh, studies was that he would have rats in a cage, uh, in, you know, in a normal cage, like a rat cage, mouse cage, whatever. Um, and they would be taught um, to tap a lever for food. Um, so every time they learned very quickly, that if they pressed the lever, they got a piece of food. And so there was this sort of reward mechanism that he was able to model their behavior. And so he'd get them tapping levers. And when they did things wrong, they would get an electric shock. And of course, now, now in 2017, without wanting to date your podcast, but the um, people are in uproar about, you know, that, how terrible that was. And actually, if you look across the whole history of psychology and behavior, there have been some remarkably awful experiments but back then we didn't know, right? So that's the thing I have to keep reminding people is in context, yes, right now, if somebody was electrocuting rats to learn about behavior, it probably would be um, frowned upon. But at the time in the 50s, nobody knew any different and it was just accepted. So um, a behaviorist fundamentally um, observes and quantifies behavior. That, that is what a behaviorist does. And you have um, animal behaviorists and human behaviorists and social behaviorists and all sorts. And so... Um, in context, I suppose it basically means it's a posh word for a pervert. Because uh, I just, uh, I, by virtue of the definition, I guess, get to sit and watch people. Um, the only difference is I don't do that weird thigh rubbing thing and smack my lips at the same time. So um, that is ostensibly what behaviorist does. And what I did is I applied the notion of observing and quantifying behavior and understanding why we do the things we do and how we can change them for the better, obviously, otherwise that would make me a serial killer, um, and applying that into the organisational and corporate structure and education as well. Those are sort of the two areas that I am most interested in. I trained as a, a, an FE, further education teacher, so I, I have an interest in education and learning. There's a lot of things that we could talk about, clearly. Yeah. and We could go off in all sorts of directions, but the thing that I really wanted to talk to you about today was the, the, the new project, in a sense, the, the Good Life Project, Mm-hmm. Um, and and clearly that's partly related to the to all the behavioral behavioral stuff. So how 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 our environment and how what we do affects the the results that we get in our lives. So if you could just maybe explain what the Good Life Project is and where your interest in that started. Yeah. So the Good Life Project is um, a uh, a, a research project that's evidencing the impact of nature um, on health, well-being, and behaviour predominantly in the workplace. So we're looking at the um, uh, cognitive and and uh, biological impact of and physiological impact as well of being having greater contact with nature. 
Um, <clears throat> that's it in a nutshell. There's a faculty of uh, one, two, three, four, five of us. <laughs> um, and we are blessed to have um, Professor Mark Salem, who was involved actually in the early stages of Sesame Street. He's an educational um, psychologist and, uh, and has some great input in terms of, uh, of people um, on the faculty and a neuroscientist and a psychologist. And um, yep. So uh, we look at the most cost effective but efficacious ways for organizations to uh, have their employees engage with nature that will do things such as reduce um, attrition, reduce sickness, reduce um, uh, stress and episodes of, um, uh, um, of, of, of illness and long-term, um, long-term sickness, whilst improving efficiency and happiness and well-being and reducing comp- incidents of complicated behaviours. So it, there's a real broad spectrum in, in terms of its, um, its appeal and its output. And where it came from is... Um, so I grew up in the middle of the countryside, um, uh, surrounded by fields, and during my sort of formative years, that, that's where I grew up, um, and was heavily affected by that. I became a much happier person and a much, um, I spent a lot of time thinking, you know, and came up with a great idea while I was in the middle of, you know, a field or whatever. Um, and... Then I moved away to a city and then I moved to a sort of suburban sort of place. Um, and I read a lot. Um, I really only read biographies and, and research, academic research. So <laughs> I'm the life and the soul of a party. Uh, so <laughs> um, uh, through reading lots of this, I was beginning to think about what it was that businesses could do um, differently that they haven't already done based on a whole body of research. And then a client of mine uh, proudly told me how they were moving to a hot desking principle where nobody would have their own desk. Um, and so obviously there had to be rules. And one of the rules was you're not allowed to personalise your desks. And I thought, I just instinctively think that doesn't work. And I'm fairly certain that my professional head is twitching now and thinking that won't work that that is that's a degrading way of working um and i'm sure there's some research on that and that same week another client of mine told me that they they were up in arms because senior management <clears throat> had discovered that somebody had forgotten to water the plants in the office and that somebody was somebody who inconveniently had become pregnant and nobody had thought about perhaps replacing the water waterer um, the plant waterer so uh, they banned plants in the workplace. And I thought, I don't think that's good either. So I started doing all this research and discovered um, not a massive amount, but enough pieces of research since the 70s with significant um, evidence-based results that demonstrate that being around nature and seeing nature has a difference to our health, our well-being, and our behaviour. And so I thought, well... <clears throat> I want to do that. I want to do something with that. Isn't that remarkable that just by looking at nature, you could feel better? Um, uh, so I started speaking to clients about it and started this idea of the research project. And at the same time, a, a little advertising marketing leaflet came through our three bed semi suburban house saying, you know, Mrs. B wants to buy your house. And I joked to my wife and I said, wouldn't it be funny if Mrs. B did pay that much for our house? Because that's way worth more than we thought it was. Um, so we had it valued as a bit of a joke. At the end of that week, we'd sold it. Um, and uh, so I said, well, let's put our money where our mouth is. If we're really, you know, I, I love being around the countryside. I'm a bit of a farmer boy. And um, if I know that it's going to make that, that much of a difference to people, maybe we should prove it. So we up sticks and bought a farm in the middle of Cambridgeshire. Um, just to really make a point of telling people that, you know, I, I know this is right. There's a lot of evidence. There's going to be more evidence. We've started doing research. Um, and now we've created on our farm a sort of an atmosphere, a centre, if you like, where people can come. We can show them the research results. We can show them what it's like to interact with nature. And we can give them real simple very, very cost-effective, many times free, actually, um, but efficacious ways that they can engage with nature back in their workplace 
um, and then also strategies for measuring that so they can demonstrate to key stakeholders, finance people, CEOs, investors, whatever, that it, it does actually work. Um, the biggest challenge, Blair, is that people think they're really complicated. Um, and people like to think that, you know, that, that we require or desire or deserve complex strategies and solutions because of, you know, how wonderful we are as people. And actually forget that it's the simplest of things that can actually create the most extraordinary results. So I want to know, I mean, I've actually been up, uh, of course, uh, you know this, but the person listening doesn't necessarily know. <laughs> when? When were you here? <laughs> I was there, Jess, I don't know if you remember. Um, and I, and I, want to, I remember the I hair. Want to, <laughs> I, I want to talk about what, it, what you're actually doing over there, but I think before we do that, that some of the evidence might be really interesting. And I know you're not at the point of being, you know, having tons and tons of evidence gathered. Yeah. This is quite a new thing. But, but what, what is the proof that connecting with nature, that interacting with nature has any proper bottom line impact on our, on our ability to, to be efficient or to be happy or to prevent illness or prevent stress or minimize stress? What's the evidence so far? Um, so I suppose the, the thing we must talk about is um, a, a landmark uh, piece of uh, research, which, which I suppose anybody in the field of um, in the, what we would term as with people in mind, um, they often cite. And um, that is the Ulrich study, which ran from 1978, I think, to 1982 by memory. Um, and in essence, he took two um, two groups of re of patients recovering from abdominal surgery, twelve in one ward, um, very similar age groups, and exactly the same operation, <clears throat> same uh, very very similar uh, uh, clinical safety markers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and those twelve people could see out of their a ward window, trees in sort of a, a natural setting, so nature. The other comparative cohort was uh, 12 people, again, recovering from the same surgery, um, who either had no view because of the way their beds were positioned or could see uh, bricks, sort of concrete um, structures um, from their view. And the 12 group, the, the group of 12 patients who could see uh, nature from their window recovered quicker, they had a shorter recovery time, they had less post-surgical complications, they required less analgesia, so less pain relief, um, and all round recovered quicker than those who couldn't. So it's a very small cohort, um, however, it's a remarkable difference. Um, and then you fast forward and there have been lots of different things. I mean, we've, uh, we have a cohort of, um, this will sound significant, but from 400 to 6,000. So we have 400 people who regularly engage with the research and we have a body of 6,000 that we can pull from for different pieces of research. 76% um, say that displaying images of nature, which could be flowers or countryside landscapes or trees. We have three different types um, of, of study. Um, to try and determine whether it's flowers that make a difference. If you can see flowers or pictures of flowers, does it need to be trees or is it just general countryside landscape? So I wanted to know from very early on if there was a difference in those three different areas. And 76% said that it made them feel more relaxed and their environment more enjoyable to be in. That's critical, which I imagine we'll end up talking about at some point today, but certainly you will understand just how important <coughs> it is for individuals to enjoy the environment that they're working in. Um, pot plants and desktop herb gardens. When people come here for some of the training or we do the training in uh, their workspace, we get them to make a, a herb garden that they can put on the desktop so people can pick the herbs and cook with them and you know, all that kind of jazz. It's quite social, but you see the herbs all the time and of course you can smell them and water them or whatever. Um, they, uh, more than 80% said they felt more happy uh, and uh, engaged with nature. Um, displaying a pot plant on your desk resulted in a 17 to 22% increase in productivity and efficiency. Um, over 60% of the cohort agreed that naturally scented candles made them feel more relaxed and less stressed. Um, it, there's, there's low, I could go on and on, but th there's no negative impact yet. 
um, that we've seen. Um, and it's significant because in this country alone, um, the average number of, of workplace minor illness absence, so that's coughs, colds, I don't know, sprained your ankle, headache, whatever, is 6.9 days um, uh, per year per person on average. Um, so obviously you'll get some people who have never been off sick, but of course somebody else might have been off for 8.2 days, in which case it averages out. Um, and somebody, I think it was the, somebody to do with uh, HR, I forget, I can't cite that study, but they worked out that it was uh, about £554 as a cost to the employer every year. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's epic. It runs into hundreds of millions that it costs the UK economy. Um, and that's just on illness and sickness. So that, that, that's before you even start talking about efficiency and, uh, you know, the effect that enjoying going to work has on teamwork, has on customer service, has on, I mean, you know, gosh, we could go on and on and on and on and on. Um, so in terms of evidence, you know, we're building some, we're not the only people, there are quite a number of universities now that are also interested in it. Um, and, and you know what, the relevant thing, Blair, is last year, 2016, we prescribed more antidepressants and more medicines for um, high blood pressure than ever before in the history of humanity. Um, now, isn't that remarkable to think that the answer, actually, because of studies that have shown that engaging with nature helps reduce blood pressure, helps reduce levels of stress, um, boosts alpha brain waves, boosts serotonin, oxytocin, dopamine, all the positive um, uh, neurochemicals that, um, that reduce the impact of depression, is all around us. Like the answer is free. And it's for most people in this country, because we have a very, um, you know, rural, leafy country, is is easily accessible and doesn't require any medicines. Um, and I think that is something we seriously need to start looking at more. The problem, and you find this with meditation, mindfulness, all of the sort of quote unquote fluffy things that people um, start to look at is that we don't talk about them enough and people dismiss them because they think that we're more, more complicated or should be more complicated or that, you know, uh, meditation for 10 minutes a day isn't, um, uh, isn't a serious enough thing. I mean, it's just, it's nuts. What, what the, the things people come up with on their own without asking questions, without answering for, asking for evidence, the, the information people accept is, it's just remarkable. It's one of the things that infuriates me about our species as much as it does, it in, engages me and interests me. There's so much in there that, that I want to pick up on because one of I'm the... I'm sorry. No, 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 it's brilliant. I mean, it's just, it's very, very rich. <laughs> and I, I, one of the things that I'm just still slightly open-mouthed about is how little it takes. I mean, you, you said images of nature. We're not even... Yeah talking about having no. I did some research uh, for this for this conversation with you and I found lots of examples of companies around the world that have uh, roof gardens that have allotments that have mm -hmm. uh, various schemes for getting their their um, employees out and actually working the land um, mm -hmm. as part of their working day you're not even talking about that you're talking about a picture of a flower that you can see while you work yeah it's nuts isn't it I mean the gold standard always is to be immersed with nature and the good life project has two key ambassadors one of them is the soil association um who are sort of the governing body if you like of, of organic growing and produce uh, and we are currently undergoing um certification to be uh, organic uh here on our farm um uh, and the the reason i mentioned that is because physical contact with soil specifically soil has been shown to reduce levels of depression and uh, stress. Uh, and there's something we think, something quite um, cathartic and, and natural in, in every sense of the word about dealing with soil and the hands-on sense of handling soil and potting things and growing. And it's used so much and with wonderful increasing amounts with people with learning difficulties and disabilities. Um, to engage and feel happier about what they're doing. And of course, they can create something with very, very wide margins for, um, for uh, 
interpretation. I was going to say failure. That, that, that would sound terrible. What I mean is it doesn't matter if they get it wrong. It doesn't matter if you spill a load of soil on the floor. It doesn't matter if you don't quite put enough in the pot. You know, so determined by your ability or your, or your disability, um, it doesn't matter quite what you do with the soil. But the very fact is that you can grow something. Um, and it's very forgiving, you know, generally plants are very forgiving. So th there's something wonderful about being in contact with it. The other ambassador is the broadcaster, Kate Humble. Um, and she talked very much about how, you know, she, she grew up in the countryside, moved to the city and then sort of didn't really feel right and needed that connection. As soon as she moved to the countryside, there was that anecdotal evidence, you know, as many people talk about, just how much more relaxed uh, and engaged she felt. So the gold standard is absolutely being in it. But I knew that if we went to businesses and said, look, here's the evidence, actually your staff will be happier and they'll work more efficiently and they'll be off sick less. Um, if you, I don't know, plant a tree or have hug a pig day on a Friday or bring in a pet in zoo once a month or, um, you know, turn the canteen into a veg patch, I know they would all turn around and say, that's too expensive. It's not practical. Um, we don't care that they'll be less happy, less efficient and more stressed. Whereas if I can say, this is the gold standard. Now we're trying to work out what the most cost effective but yet efficacious results are. And we're seeing actually just seeing images of nature has a similar effect. Then I know that they're much more likely to engage in it. And then the next step is encouraging them to get into a more physical contact with nature. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I was wondering about that because I was wondering what sort of response you had. So, so when I tell uh, teams that I work with, oh yeah, in two to three years time, it's going to be possible for your team to come to my converted barn or my circle of yurts or whatever it is and yeah. do the work that we're doing out there they're really enthusiastic really enthusiastic uh -huh. they sign me up if i was to say next week would you like to come to my circle of yurts yes. uh, or, or work in my barn that i might not get the same enthusiasm i think sure. People, people are, um, they get it theoretically and they love the idea of it. But practically speaking, if it's a choice between disappearing off to, to a farm or off to your company allotments for, for two or three hours or two or three days versus is there something we can do here in the office while we're answering emails? I think at the moment, they're more likely to go for the latter, aren't they? Sure. We have to remember that we're lazy. As a species, we're, we're a phenomenally lazy species, and you see demonstrations of that all the time. That's not me being flippant. We, we, we really are, yeah, um, because it's a sort of rogue and probably unnecessary behavior now, but, um, but developmentally, you know, we, we are built to conserve energy and built to conserve um, emotion and stress. So that's why most people compartmentalize emotion and issues, um, and I tell them all the time not to do it because just because you compartmentalize it now and put that issue in a little box and tucked it away to the back of your head, at some point it will burst out like a jack-in-the-box and rugby tackle you to the ground and force you to deal with it, probably, most likely, at the least inconvenient time. Sorry, at the most inconvenient time. Um, so we do that a lot. Go to any public space where there is a path that clearly defines the route of walking um, and you will find that people cut the corners of the path or the grass is worn on the corner because it was quicker to cut the corner than it was to go around. Um, it's why people delegate so much. It's why people um, uh, work in teams and feel secure by working in teams because it means that other people pick up the slack. I mean, you see it all the time. Um, that's okay. It's normal. We just need to know what to do about that. But um, that's why... People love the idea of these things, but there's, you know, always a restriction to actually do something about it because it means taking the next logical step. And we found, little tip for you here when you end up with Blair's Llama World, um, we found that making it fun seems to be the thing that makes people want to do it. That, that's the sort of the, the, the step to engagement is that, um, like chicken training, for example, so okay tell me about the chicken training so so real quick right um this is just a point of in context is that um everybody well not everybody there are lots of people that do management training and lots of people that tell you how to be a better leader or a better manager or whatever and i have said for years that i don't think anybody should be allowed to be a manager unless they first learned how to train a chicken right because chickens are phenomenally unforgiving 
Like if you get it wrong, it will just keep doing the thing that you taught it to do when you reinforced it at the wrong time or, or it will get bored and walk off. So you have to know exactly what you're going to do before you do it. You have to be absolutely sharp about reinforcing. You have to know what punishment is effective, what reinforcement is effective. That's another thing that annoys me. When you talk about punishment and everybody gets all like, <gasps> and they go, oh my God, he's talking about punishing a chicken or punishing a human. And, and you know, the definition of punishment is an act or behavior <clears throat> that um, reduces the immediately preceding behavior to, that, to a level that it doesn't happen again. Says so nothing about being punitive, nothing about being nasty. You know, you don't have to hit people to punish them. You don't have to lock them away for hundreds of years. Um, so um, I discovered very quickly that, you know, if you're just talking about management and leadership and all the rest of it, it wasn't really, didn't seem very engaging. It wasn't enough to have somebody say, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to make, I want to make a difference as a manager. I want to do something differently. Suddenly, when we talk about chicken training, and I teach you how to train a chicken and then how all of those skills, all of them, directly applied to you as a manager or a leader and then we apply them using interactive you know um uh, interactive uh, games and strategies to directly into your business and um, suddenly it, you know it becomes much more engaging people are much more interested in it they they love it at the end of it they say oh you know i never thought i could apply that that and that i never thought about doing it differently that way before and some of the things that we talk about and i'm very open about this in the in the workshop some of the things we talk about are not new you just think they're new because you didn't do anything with it before and we've done it in a way that is more interesting to you therefore selfishly you're now more interested in it and you're going to behave differently towards the people in your charge so um i think look you know you need to do llama riding for managers when you set up your <laughs> when you set up your farm <laughs> absolutely llama wrangling something like yes, that yes that's exactly it right <laughs> So, so what's the well? Okay, what what is the the key lesson? I'm slightly obsessed by the chicken training. So, what okay. what's the key, what's the, the the theme that comes out most commonly from the chicken training? What are people coming away with that they already know, but that the chicken training has reinforcing them, and suddenly they really get it? Oh, that's a good question. <clears throat> um, I think probably the two things are that preparation uh, and understanding what you are doing and where you are going, what your journey is, and having that absolutely planned out and you yourself know where you're going and what you're going to do is, is critical, is key. You can't make it up as you go along. It's less effective, um, which everyone knows, right? But, but people do fall into the trap of making up as they go along. Why? Because we're lazy, because it's easier to do it that way, right? It takes less effort. Um, and probably the second thing that they know inherently that um, people like different things, but they fall into the trap of blanket reinforcement. So what I mean by that is very, very commonly, and you will have a similar thing, you know, when you speak at conferences or you're invited to train um, organizations all over the world it's the same where people will um, have an award ceremony for example and everybody gets a bottle of champagne well what if you don't drink alcohol what if you can't drink alcohol what if you don't like champagne those things aren't reinforcing right in the same way that some people don't like having their head touched or their then you know their, their neck or their shoulders touched so if you were to pat somebody on the head and say, good job, well done, that wouldn't be reinforcing. Um, and we have an interesting combination in that um, some of the chickens love a particular grain and some of them prefer a different one and some of them actually prefer kale or, or greens, brassicas. Um, so working out what, it, you know, what each of the people in your team find more reinforcing or of value is critical to modelling behaviour. And they inherently know that, but, you know, the chicken really does prove that point. <laughs> I watched a lady. <laughs> I watched a lady offering the chicken. <laughs> the chicken had done the thing that she asked it to do. It was pecking the correct colour. And uh, she offered it a cup of grain and it, <laughs> it walked off because it didn't want the grain. So she chased it round the room, trying to force it to have this treat like forcing it to like the thing that she had chosen it should be reinforced with um 
And as funny as it was, it was a, probably the strongest learning curve and the strongest um, uh, takeaway. I'm trying to think of the word, um, you know, con conclusive part of that training that actually you can't force somebody to do something and you can't force them to like the thing that you think they should like as a reward in the hope that they'll do it again. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. I, um, I'm learning to ride a horse at the moment. And I did used to ride when I was a kid, but I hadn't been on a horse in 20 years or something. And, uh, and is it like riding a bike? It's not at all like riding oh. a bike. Not wow. at all. Um, wow. One thing, your body is completely different 20 years later. So, you, uh, know, sure. you know, where you used to have muscles. So, but also, it's a living thing that you know, you're riding. <laughs> okay. and, the fundamental difference between a bike. Basically, a pretty basic difference. And, and the, it has its own wants and its own, um, you know, motivations and its own personality and all of that. And uh, so I'm riding yesterday and I'm learning to canter right now. And I mean, the poor horse Chesney, poor Chesney, um, oh, he's got, he's, well, for one thing, I do feel bad about his name and the, <laughs> he's beautiful. He's absolutely beautiful. And I trust him completely, but he's basically with me, got a sack of potatoes on his back. Anyway, so the, the teacher is telling me to look where I want him to go. Yes. Actually, telling him where I want to go is not about the reins because I haven't in canter at the moment I don't have a lot of control over the reins because I'm just barely clinging on you know to, to yes so I'm not really able to do that but she says look where you're going and so I turn my head a bit he doesn't have a clue and she says okay you're really not looking where you're going I said <laughs> I, really, I really am trying really trying yeah. to, I'm also trying to stay on you know and she, she says no, really really twist your body so the next time round I, I twist really round to the left and surprise, surprise, Chesney goes where I want him to go. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the same message really, which is that the horse, the horse is responding to things that don't have anything to do with your age, the size yes. of car that, you know, the kind of car that you drive, yes. um, how fancy your job title. The, yes. the horse is responding to your energy and to your body and to your intention. Yes. And, and that's about it. Uh, and if you don't really commit to we're going left here, then uh -huh. it doesn't go left. Yes. Where it's going. And I, I, I do, it's one of my strong motivations for getting people out of the office and, and into different environments. And it's almost as though, yes, animals are a great teacher in this way, um, but it wouldn't matter what, what it was. If you take yourself away from what you the habits that are deeply formed because you're doing something familiar mm -hmm. you put yourself into a position where you're doing something unfamiliar yes the lessons that can be drawn from that are are really powerful and very memorable because they happened in a in a sort of quite unusual unique situation sure so in addition to the nature aspect I wonder if there's also just the, the difference aspect, the kind of, this is new. This It's the same reason that you touch your nose. It's, it's, the, it's the, can I draw your attention to something different to get you out of your habits of thinking and your habits yeah. of thinking? Um, I have a question. Um, is cantering the one where you run really fast? Cantering, so you've got walking, then yes. trotting where you're going up and down, and then cantering... Yes. Yeah, that's ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. You're going, you're not actually necessarily going that fast, but it's a completely different rolling motion. Is it not slightly remiss of your horse teacher to ensure that you can actually go left or right or steer the animal before you start going at speed? No, <laughs> she's very good. I mean, I have been learning for... It doesn't sound very good. <laughs> I'm really, really secure in walk and trot, so there's nowhere else to go now but to the next right. step. And it's, it's well, going to be... Left and right, I would argue. Yeah. Probably. Well, left and right and trot is a different thing, you know, because I'm very secure. But you, the horse... The, <laughs> this, is, this is slightly uh, off the point, but the horse is only going to go round and around the, the school. So the worst uh, thing that is that the horse is going to go in the direction that you're going or eventually just stop. So nothing... I didn't happen. realise you were learning on a caged animal, I'm yeah. sorry. Um, <laughs> so the... In a very small... <laughs> Um, very, um, very safe and Chesney's not going to jump the fence Chesney. So, uh, Chesney. Um, so so coming back to what you were saying um, I have a maxim that if it looks the same it feels the same 
And this is why I have always, always been an advocate of getting out of the environment you're in. So, and I've done it all over the world. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the weather is good. We're going outside. Um, if there is another room that I can do my session in that isn't the room you've been in all day, that's the one I'd love to do. Now, don't get me wrong. Eighty percent of the time, it's not possible. There is a room that a thousand people are sat in. The time it takes to get a thousand people somewhere else. The logistics of that are a nightmare. There's no reason to have another room that fits a thousand people, so it doesn't happen. When it does happen, it's pure magic, and I mean that sincerely. So I, I ran a conference. I didn't run a conference. I was running a, a long training session at a conference at a hotel in the Lake District, and the weather was lovely. And I said to the um, client, I said, any chance, I've been for a walk around because I stayed at the hotel, there's an amazing waterfall and like a bit of a clearing in this woods where this waterfall was. I said, would you be a, totally averse to me just going out and we'll do my session out there? He said, uh, well, no, I, I, I guess not. Yeah, so I, somebody carried my flip chart, someone carried the pens, off we went. Took, I don't know, five minutes to get 300 people to this waterfall. And, um, and we had an absolute whale of a time. Like people rated that session the best that they'd ever had in their life. It was, you know, the most amazing training. We got really, really, really great answers out of the activities that we ran. Nothing to do with me, Blair. I'm just a conduit. That, that's, you know, it's never, it's never about me. It's about them. And the, the inv we are a product of our environment. And if I can get you out of a stale office, the office you're in all the time, if it looks the same, it feels the same. And so if you can come to the farm, whether it be Blair's Llama World or whether it be the Good Life Project Farm, and you can experience something different, two wonderful things happen. Two significant studies have shown that um, within a period of about three months, if you're only told something, you remember about 10% of it. But if you're told it, you're shown it, and you experience it. So if you have full cognitive and emotional engagement with the thing that you're learning, you remember 65%. That's a massive difference. Um, and the reason is because of how we engage with our environment and how we engage with, um, you know, what happens when we're learning. Um, uh, the same way that I hate the fact that at most conferences people just shove their face full of sweets on the table or fried food uh, during the, you know, the, the lunches and stuff. They don't get any choice, but they're there, so they eat them, and then they end up with sugar highs and lows and carbohydrate crashes, and then they, you know, the people who run the conferences wonder why nothing really changes when they get back to work. Um, these poor people have been dragged through this... <laughs> <laughs> this abuse on their bodies all day <clears throat> so i think it absolutely <clears throat> is about showing people something different experiencing something different but not just because it might be nice it has a real fundamental um psychological impact on on the way we engage with that difference so you've um you said earlier on you know it started off with a bit of research <coughs> and it's turned into a massive change of lifestyle Yes. And you now live in this gorgeous old house with, you've just converted the barn into a, a sort of learning centre, I guess. Well, we built the barn. We didn't convert it. That was brand new. Oh, you built that. Wow, wow, wow. I didn't even know that. And, yeah. and you've got this lovely bit of land and some veg and all of that and the opportunity to grow it out. I, I know because I grew up on a small holding that beautiful as this stuff looks, it looks idyllic. It's not always... <laughs> always happy days when you wake up in the morning and you know you're facing all of that have there been any low points since you made this massive change of lifestyle how long do we have <laughs> <laughs> i'm not kidding like seriously this this could dominate the conversation yes is the simple answer many weekly um mrs jez and i moved in um oh my gosh blair palmer Mrs. Jez moved in six months ago to the day that this is being recorded. Wow. Look at what? that. Aren't you a little bit sneaky and clever? Wow. Um, you little turnip. Absolutely. Um, yes. Synchronicitous intentionally. Yes. Six months ago today. I wasn't there, naturally. <laughs> <laughs> you were giving a speech somewhere, I think. Yes, I was. Yeah. Poor woman moved on her own. I was uh, away for the rest of that week. So <clears throat> um, when we moved in, it was pretty dilapidated more dilapidated than we thought typical farmhouse um, most farmers are have a go heroes when it comes to pretty much everything like you know if they can if they reckon they can probably give it a go or get away with it then they will 
Um, and so we moved into a, we, a house where it inherited every problem under the sun. Um, it has been the worst thing I've ever done in my life and the most exciting and the most rewarding in equal measure. Um, and in those six months, gosh, I can't believe that. How lovely. In those six months, um, we have done more than we anticipated to do because of the problems that kept arriving that we could not do anything about. So we took much more on than we wanted. Um, and I wanted to get to the point where people could enjoy it. But of course, you can't just have, you know, a whole load of land that has nothing on it and looks pretty dull and uninspiring when you're trying to encourage people to get out in nature because of how inspiring it is. So, uh, and there weren't any paths, you know, and it was muddy and yeah, so we had to put in a lot of infrastructure, a lot of landscaping. Um, and it's a little bit chocolate box and Disney in, a, in the sense that, you know, it's not a working farm yard. Um, but the purpose is that you can look at some of the things that we've done and take a tiny bit of it away or be inspired or, or at least just have a go. Um, so I can understand if somebody might say, Oh, you know, I grew up on a farm and this is, you know, a bit perfect. Um, but we've done that because we want it to be a really enjoyable space, a clean space, a, uh, a relaxing space for people to come and realize the impact that nature can have. Uh, and that's, I think, you know, like for me, I grew up on a farm, it's no big deal. I can sit in a pig yard and, and I still get that. But I think if you're a city slicker, um, try saying that after too much organic apple juice. And if you're a city slicker, then um, I think that leap can be a little difficult. I think you have to spell it out for people. Again, we're sometimes a bit lazy like that, but we need to be shown the difference. <laughs> it's lovely and, and I think you're right that in fact it changed something for me as well because I, I um, as people will know uh, I had the allotment until quite recently I had to give it up because we moved away mm. to a different house and I can't drive 45 minutes to the allotment so um, and back so I, I had to I had to say goodbye to all of that and now I've got a little yard until we move to our proper farm thing I've got mm -hmm. a little yard and um I was a bit, uh, I was a bit sad about giving up this lovely plot and, and all my plans for it. And then I saw you were growing a few potatoes in some raised beds and, and a couple of other things. And I thought, you know, I can do, I can do that in the yard. So I took some of the potatoes with me that I didn't get a chance to plant. And I took some of the leeks and, and some onions and they're all growing in, in little grow bags and things in the back garden here. And yeah, it's not, it's not the all embracing plot of, of allotment and all of that, but it's, it's something and it's, it's sure. certainly better than nothing. I mean, far better than nothing. It's wonderful. Good. Well, I, and I, I think probably your comment is the, the, the most valuable part of what you've just said is that it, it isn't about buying a farm it's not about buying a small holding it's not about up <clears throat> upping sticks and moving to the countryside it's about understanding what contact with nature does and having gaining inspiration about the little things that you could take back um you know it, i always think the analogy i often offer people when they ask about the good life project for example and how they can put this great big piece of research which is ongoing um, into context uh, in their own working environment is I would say you know you can be really interested in space and stars and planets but you don't have to become an astronaut you don't have to buy a spaceship you don't have to work for NASA you can buy a telescope you could sit outside uh, at night or lay on your back on the grass and look up you could um, buy some DVDs on space or books or sticks and posters up. You know, there are myriad ways to engage with something and still get the feeling of that sort of cooperative, collaborative, um, group, beneficial uh, feeling of being a part of something and learning about something. It doesn't have to be the whole hog. That's exactly the same as what we're doing here. You know, from, I suppose, the simplest, simplest thing would be to put a picture of something natural on your desk somewhere where you can see it all the time. Um, and then you've got every intervention that you could imagine throughout the whole thing, you know, upgrade to a pot plant, upgrade to a view out of your window that's something natural, upgrade to a, 
herb garden in your office upgrade to a walking meetings or a running club or a allotment club or upgrade to you know some seeds we've got some free oh we could do that for your listeners you could claim some free wild flower seeds maybe we should do that we've got these free these packets of wild flower seeds that are bee friendly if we keep bees here um i'm really 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 pro um planting for pollinators to in- increase um bee populations um which are struggling and of course you benefit from that as well because you get to see lovely flowers and you can pick the flowers if you want and so it's kind of a win-win-win um uh, and so you could sprinkle those wildflowers on a sort of patch of bare ground at work or in a plant uh, bed or you know on a windowsill or whatever not obviously not on the windowsill in a plant pot on the windowsill um, um so there's sort of you know loads of different ways or sticks and buy out of the country <laughs> so you can there are lots of different mechanisms for uh, for, 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 for taking part so this really feels like something that you know if you if if someone fancies calling themselves a leader this really feels like something that needs to be on their on their agenda because like you said the whole idea of leadership leading people leading on an initiative can feel really complex you know start talking about engagement engagement surveys and emotional intelligence and all these special tricks and techniques that you need in order to get people's attention and in order to get them to care and actually it could be it could be much more simple and it could be as simple as can we just think about the environment in which we work and make a few subtle changes and and for yeah. something that you could initiate for basically no cost mm-hmm. week, that that sounds that sounds really simple to do with massive impact right yeah, yeah. And, it, and, it, and it is phenomenally simple to do i think that's the wonderful thing about it you know nature is so incredibly complicated you know i often look at so on our barn we have um a wild flower roof it's all sedum all, all across the top which the bees love um and uh and i look at those the complexity of the stem and the petals and and i think gosh that started off as a and you only really i think appreciate this when you grow your own either plant seeds or um parsnips was the thing i found amazing parsnip seeds have you ever grown parsnips from a seed blair i've seen the seeds yeah they're yeah. tiny i mean it's like a well, it's like a seed you'd see blowing about in the wind. It's like, it's the thinnest, flimsiest, tiniest little seed. And yet it grows this root structure and leaves and, and this great big vegetable as well. And, and I just find that remarkable. So I often look at the, the seed and roof. Now, we, we have a, um, a sort of separate initiative of the Good Life Project called Bees for Business, which is about encouraging businesses to um, either adopt, buy, or rent um, uh, beehives, honey beehives. And um, there are lots of different ways they can engage with that. They either you know, learn to be a beekeeper and do it themselves, or we link them up with local beekeepers and they manage them for them and they get the honey. They could give the honey to a community project. They could sell the honey, give it away as corporate gifts, blah, blah, blah. blah. But the, the interesting thing is that there are so many analogies to honeybee colonies and hives directly to business literally like metaphor after metaphor after metaphor like the way that the bees work together the way they work independently the different um uh, hierarchy and structure they have but they seem to do it much better than humans do um now obviously bees a lot more um a lot more simpler entity than a human um but i think there's an awful lot we can learn from them and i often look at the two things you know the sedum growing and the bees all over it and then think about the bees and the structure of the bees and how a honey colony is very similar to every organization I've ever worked with in fact and I think it's just so simple isn't it it's just so simple just the simplest of things and you just let it happen the thing with human beings is we're not very good at renegating control you know we 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 like um, to be in control we like to think we have all the answers and so when you hand training or hand well-being or health or behavior over to nature and we don't fully understand it and it's phenomenally complicated. I think there's that's where the resistance comes from, is that you know, I always tell people if you don't understand why you're doing something, we get significantly less engagement and interaction because of that lack of cognitive and emotional understanding. And I think that's the same, is that that's the the barrier I see a lot is that people say, But but how does it work? 
you know, so we're going to bring, we're going to encourage people to interact with nature. We're going to have our bee colony or whatever. We go out and see it and people feel much better after it, but they don't know why. Um, and so this is why coming full circle, I felt the need for the Good Life Project to continue the research so that we had actual scientific evidence as to why it works. We know it works. There's shed loads of evidence to suggest it works and we're producing that evidence too, but we're not entirely sure why. And that's the bit of, of research that we're focusing on at the minute um, to fully understand why it is that the simple things in leadership, in management, in business, in life can make fundamentally quite extraordinary changes. Well, I think, um, I think that's a brilliant place to leave it because the, the message is really clear that, and for me, one of the things I take from what you've just said is that, people do seem to know, seem to need to know the why. But actually, we, when we spend a lot of time focusing on the why to do something that we deeply know is right. I mean, I can't imagine anybody listening to this and saying, I don't believe that being out in nature is good for us. Don't believe it. I, I, can't, I can't imagine anybody <laughs> listening to this and thinking that. I can imagine people saying, but I, I, we're not going to do anything about it in the workplace or I, I don't know where to start, although, frankly, you've made it very easy for them to start. Um, but, but I think we all know uh, instinctively and as human beings the answer to quite a lot of these questions. And I wonder if um, in leadership too that, we, that maybe one of the things that being with nature teaches us and being with animals teaches us and, and touching the soil teaches us is that this idea of control is an illusion of control, in fact. Huh. And yes. that, um, you know, it's, this is something I learned actually on an equine guided leadership program that you think you're making the horse do the thing. But frankly, you can't make a horse do anything. It's a really, really big animal. If it doesn't want to do it, the thing, it's not going to. Your, your measly little body is not going to make it do anything. Um, and, and I think that's true with all of this stuff that, we actually have a lot less control than we think we do and letting go of that need to control and letting go of the belief that we control it can be hugely liberating and actually create incredible results. It's not that we're giving up on having great results. It's just that we're working out how to access those results by having a bit less of this illusion of control. Yes, absolutely. I think it's, I often talk about um, leaders guarding an empty safe. And it's that, it's that exact thing. That they, um, there's a perception that there is some sort of some sort of special secret to it. And actually, when you ask a group of leaders or managers to be honest, put their hand on their heart, raise their hands if they have one, if they feel as a leader that they have 100% of the answers and the strategies for coping, that they feel they're totally there, like absolutely on it. As a leader and a manager, you can throw pretty much anything at them, and they they're comfortable with it. And hardly anybody ever puts their hand up because fundamentally the reason that people are leaders is because they were a very good something else. They were a great salesperson or sales director and said, oh, you, you should really well, let me put you into a, make you a manager. And you're attracted by the flattery, you're attracted by the probable increase in salary and the career development. But actually it's an entirely different role. That's why florists, and I'm not picking out florists individually, but it's why people with a skill often aren't very good business people because running a business is a very different set of skills. So you can be a great florist or baker or whatever, but it won't necessarily mean say you make a great business out of it because they're two different skills in the same way that whatever you were doing before you became a leader was something else. And you might have been brilliant at that. But it doesn't guarantee that you're going to be a leader, which is probably why you've got on your bookshelf the One Minute Manager and Who Moved My Cheese and a number of other leadership books because you're still looking for the answers to developing. And how can people follow you and your adventures on the farm? Oh gosh, um, if you if you really want to, you, um, so my website is uh, www.thebehaviourexpert.com, and uh, there are links on there to the Good Life Project and um, the Charity Project, the Just One Project, and um, lots of other things. And then the Good Life Project has its own website, which is about to launch with a brand new shiny. There's loads of free resources. There's videos on there, um, infographics. 
research, all sorts of things to help you engage with nature in your workplace. Um, and obviously some of the courses we've got are on there as well. And that is thegoodlifeproject.info, uh, www.thegoodlifeproject.info. Fantastic. Well, Jez, it's as ever so fun and interesting and energizing to talk to you. And um, I just can't wait for, for how this is all going to evolve and, and what the impact's going to be on business. I mean, I can really imagine in a few years' time that, that certainly the companies that you've been working with and that have got their head around some of this stuff are going to feel dramatically different as a result. But it's been amazing, Blair. It's been one of the best experiences of my life. Thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. Thank you. <laughs> oh, what a joker he is. I'm sure I'll be talking to Jez again on this podcast as he gets more and more evidence together of the impact of nature on productivity and mental well-being. And I hope this podcast has inspired you to get your hands into some soil, grow something, or just stick a picture of a flower on your desk. I'm back next week, of course, but meanwhile, here's Ivy Palmer with details of how you can get yourself some wildflower seeds and how you can stay in touch with Jez and with me. Hello! You can find out more about the Good Life Project at www.thegoodlifeproject.info Info stands information and for your free did you hear me say free even if you don't use them they're free so they're free 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 okay enough so just get them come on wild flower seeds go to dot don't forget the dot freebieseeds dot don't forget the dot co dot don't forget the dot uk you can follow jez's adventure on instagram oh my god instagram at the behavior expert and at the good life project farm we love farms don't we mommy we, we love them yeah <laughs> Dogs are going crazy. <laughs> Dogs like farms as well. Yeah. Are we? Are we? serious? And we'd love to know how you are bringing nature to your workplace. You can comment on this or any other ideas related to this podcast on Instagram, Twitter, or the Instagram. Facebook page. Woo. Thanks for listening. Hug and kisses. Ooh.